For those of you who don't know first, my name's Murray. It's good to be here. And I'm, yeah, going to talk about mission today, which um, the irony is not lost on me that I'm speaking about mission when, you know, we've got Joe and Pete Ong who are still in Sydney at the moment who are literal missionaries in Malawi. Um, or we've even got our interim senior pastor slash missions pastor, Brian, who, you know, has done phenomenal work over in the Solomons and even in Australia. Um, and I was feeling a little bit intimidated and, um, yeah, I suppose out of my depth to speak about mission today. And I expressed that to Brian and uh, he sort of made the point, which I think is very profound, that mission isn't just for the missionaries. Mission isn't just for the mission pastor. Mission isn't just for the leader of the ministry program that's running at this church. Mission is for all of us. So I think that's a really good sort of foundation to set because hopefully that then allows all of us into it. um, Because I know that for me, in the past, maybe I've let myself off the hook a little bit that, you know, mission is seems like this overwhelming thing and we can end up sort of, I suppose, being so overwhelmed by this idea of mission that we are maybe suddenly just resigned to not doing anything. So I want to first kind of set this idea of mission is for everyone. Um, what does mission look like for you? What does mission look like for you? If you're not a missionary, if you're not a pastoral, a missions pastor, if you're not suddenly someone who sees themselves as a leader of, you know, a, a, a program or, or even some sort of team or group, what does mission look like for you? Because we're all called to mission. Because it's very easy to look at Acts 1.8 and, and feel a little bit overwhelmed by it. Um, In Acts 1 to 8, it's some of Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascends to heaven. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my disciples and witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And that can, that can seem a bit intimidating. That can be something that, oh, what, what, what do I do with that? What's, what, what's that mean for me? Even Jerusalem in our heads, or in my head at least, seems so far away. And it can be a bit almost disempowering as the enemy can start to get into our heads and, and make us feel insecure about that. So I want to kind of re-reference or, or recontextualize that verse in Acts 1.8 to, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Dural and in all Kabago and Yarrabah and to the ends of the earth. Maybe the ends of the earth is a little bit different for you to what it was for the disciples that Jesus was speaking to. So I want to tell you a quick story about a guy called St. Patrick, who was the patron saint of Ireland. Um, I didn't know this until recently, but St. Patrick was actually born in England. And when he was about 16 years old, he was kidnapped by Irish pirates, which I'm sure was a lot more terrifying than it sounds. It kind of sounds like fun, but like I'm sure it was horrific at the time. So kidnapped by Irish pirates and taken at the age of 16 over to Ireland, across the sea, far away from his own country, and made to be a slave for six years on a farm, until he finally, about the age of 22, escaped and fled all the way back to England. So at this point, he starts studying the word, starts becoming a a, a pastor, and then infamously one day comes across this verse, Acts 1.8. And he sees the ends of the earth, for him, being Ireland, the place 
where he got kidnapped and taken to, the place where he'd been a slave, the place where he'd escaped from, that was his ends of the earth. Now, in, in just, you know, context, it's about an eight-hour drive, you know, in modern days. I mean, it's not really that far. If you look at it on a world map, Ireland and England aren't that far away from each other. But to St. Patrick, at that point, that was the ends of the earth. And this idea that the ends of the earth was about the equivalent in distance for us from like Sydney to Byron Bay. That's like a trip that most year 12 students make at the end when they go to schoolies. Like it's not that intimidating for us. That doesn't seem like the ends of the earth. So what is our ends of the earth? What is your end of the earth when Jesus commissions you to go out to the ends of the earth? What's the boundary that you're maybe needing to pass, to, to, to cross with the gospel in your life? In uh, John 14, 12, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. As I've said, all these verses, we can start reading them, and they can, they can become really intimidating, to be honest. And I, I can suddenly just become disempowered when the enemy kind of gets into my head and starts planting seeds of doubt, and suddenly doing greater things than Jesus. I'm like, well, how am I supposed to do greater things than Jesus? That's... That's crazy, and it is, because it's only through his sacrifice and the power of the Holy Spirit that we're going to do that. But So, so what does that mean, to do greater things in Jesus? And I think that, for me, that, that's been a hurdle in my life a lot of the time. I thought, well, I'm, I'm never going to do greater things than Jesus, so maybe I just won't try. And I think that, hopefully, I'm not the only one who, who at times has thought this, this idea of this greater things in Jesus can be a hurdle that suddenly we come up against and we kind of can't get over. But I want to encourage us this morning that maybe before we try and jump that hurdle of doing greater things in Jesus, which 100%, we are totally 1,000% empowered to do through Jesus' sacrifice and through the Holy Spirit being in us. But before we maybe try and do that, why don't we just start, if we're not, just doing less than Jesus? You know, instead of trying to feed 5,000, Maybe just trying to feed one in our own lives. Instead of trying to heal the sick, just visiting someone in hospital. Instead of trying to prophesy um, profound future visions over someone, just speaking biblical truths over someone. And suddenly it's not so intimidating and we're starting to walk and then we can run and then maybe one day as a community we can see a situation in which we can do greater things in Jesus through the Holy Spirit and through working together as a community. So now that we've kind of put that foundation in, that we can all do mission, we don't have to be intimidated by it, we don't need to be scared by it, I want to look at today four qualities of effective mission. So for us, what are four qualities that no matter what we're doing, whether we're doing mission in Dural, Cabago, Yaraba, the ends of the earth, whatever that looks like for you, even whether that crossing that boundary in your life could be the next suburb along, could be next door, it could be sitting across the dinner table from you every night, whatever that boundary is in your life, what are four effective qualities of mission? So I want to look at first revelation. No, I don't want to look at Revelation. That's a lie. I didn't flip this properly. <laughs> I want to look at restoration first. Sorry, guys. I want to look at restoration. So that's the first quality that I want to look at. Sharing the gospel in word and deed. So Marbs, in that video, he spoke about how we, 
as Christians, want to be reflecting God's heart for justice and mercy by making Jesus in not only all we say, but all we do. So the worst job that I ever had in my entire life, I I literally did it for about 10 days. Emily's laughing because it was awful. I sold car wax door-to-door on a 100% commission basis. It was awful. I was walking, I'm I'm not even over-exaggerating, 40 kilometres a day in business shoes, lugging this giant bag around with with all these different packets of car wax. And the truth is, the product itself was actually good. It worked. But it was just a cringy way to sell car wax. Like You're knocking on someone's door, you were immediately walking out to their car, spraying their car with this aerosol car wax, and you're talking to them about this car wax and trying to convince them to spend you know, upwards of $50 on these different packages. right? And the thing that, that I wanted to kind of pull out of that this morning was not only was I telling people about this car wax, but I'd take them out to their car, I'd spray a little bit on their car and start buffering it. And suddenly people weren't just being told about this car wax, they're actually seeing it. I was revealing a tiny little part of restoration, bringing their car to what it could be in that tiny little part because I was showing them through both word and deed how great this car wax was. And that's kind of what this is about, similar. What we're doing is we want to see the gospel revealed in a small way through restoration in our ministry. Most of the time in Jesus' ministry, when he's in the gospel, he sees a need, He addresses that need and then he shares in word. Whether it's physical or mental or emotional, spiritual, societal, you know, somebody who's downtrodden and and an outcast, pulling them back in, restoring them in that way. And then he's sharing the good news. We need to be restoring people. We need to be seeing needs and addressing them before we can be expecting them to understand what it means to be in a relationship with God. James 2, 15 to 18 reads, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. Sorry, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Okay, so this isn't this is undermining this idea that we need to live by faith and the power of faith. But what it is saying is our works need to be coming out of faith. John fourteen twelve, Jesus says, "Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do works I have been doing, and they'll do even greater things than these." So the next quality of effective mission that I want to look at, we've looked at restoration. I want to look at revelation. Okay? So this idea of contextualizing the gospel to our culture, to our situation, to our end of the earth, to our boundary that we're crossing. So Cherie in that video again spoke about contextualization and she said mission will look different in different places and different times. So we need to then adopt a posture towards our own culture by seeking to understand it well. It's really, really important. Before we're going to expect ourselves to be able to contextualize something, to speak to somebody in a a language that they're going to understand, in a way that they understand, first we need to understand what culture they're in. We need to understand their personal situation. Adopting a learning posture towards our own culture by seeking to understand it well. 
First, we need to understand the culture we're speaking to. Um, Alan Nicholson in our Bible study always says, God gave you two ears and one mouth. You should use them proportionately, <laughs> which is a good reminder for me anyway. Maybe uh, <laughs> you're speaking to me personally. James 1.19 kind of echoes this idea. He writes, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. How fervent and, and excited can we be to share the gospel that we sort of end up just bulldozing somebody and aren't actually listening, aren't actually responding to where they're at, not listening. We need to be speaking their language. Perfect example of this is the Ongs. When they, when they went to Malawi, they, they didn't just expect to go to Malawi and just speak English the whole time. They learnt Chichua because to us, that, that, that's obvious. That would be crazy to go to another country and start sharing the gospel in a language that they don't really understand very well. So obviously we need to start adopting and listening to what this culture that we're speaking into, regardless of what it is in our own lives, is speaking, what it means for them. A classic example of this is if someone is told that God is their heavenly father and they've had a really estranged relationship with their father, this idea of God being a heavenly father might mean something very different to them to what it does to us. But if we're actually able to be sensitive enough and patient enough to speak to them, get to know their story, understand where they're at, understand what their perceptions of a father might be, then maybe we're able to be more effective in the way that we share this idea of a heavenly father who loves them. 1 Corinthians 9, 20 and 23, it's a, it's a pretty commonly quoted verse by Paul. He says, To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Contextualization is so, so important to mission, no matter where we are. Francis Xavier, it was a um, Spanish missionary in the 16th century, and he was the first one that we know of historically to take the gospel over to Japan. Now, when he got to Japan, he started teaching them about Jesus. He started teaching them about the gospel, and he realized very quickly that they don't have red wine, or they didn't in the 16th century in Japan. If you don't have any wine, any red wine, suddenly that can pose a little bit of a stumbling block, a bit of a hurdle for communion. It's like, well, what do we do here? So he had two options. He could spend you know, five, six, seven years buying a plot of land, establishing a vineyard, growing grapes, fermenting the grapes, learning how to make wine, just so that they could have a symbol of Jesus' blood, or... He recontextualized it. Instead, he used rice wine as the, the, the sacrament of the cup in communion. And not only did that then make it more accessible to the Japanese that he was speaking to, it also allowed him to save a good five, six years of time and toil and money and effort. Contextualization could not only help the people we're speaking to, it can help us. <laughs> it can make our lives a lot easier. So the next point I want to look at, the next quality of effective mission is reconciliation. I think this is a really big one for us, being effective through unity. So Fiona in the video spoke about historically one of the initial reasons the Baptist church really came to work together in the way that we know it today was to be more effective in mission through coordination. So in the 1700s, William Carey, known as the, the father of modern missionary, he inspired like-minded people to work together 
to form the first Baptist Missionary Society. You know, it's interesting. I was sort of thinking about this, the, the Great Commission, which I, I haven't put on the slide, so sorry, but um, Matthew 28, 19 to 20, it would probably been drummed into our, our minds for a long time. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Now, I thought this was really interesting. I was thinking about this idea of a Great Commission. And I, I, I had this kind of revelation that there's kind of two definitions for commission. There's first the verb, you know, sort of to be commissioned to go out, an instruction or a command, how we usually think of the Great Commission. But commission is also a noun, right, which is, which is a group of people entrusted by an authority to, to enact something. To enact the Great Commission, we need to be a Great Commission. We need to be working together and unified. And that's why we need to be showing through our mission, we, we should be reconciled. We'll be showing reconciliation. In 1 Peter 3, 8, he writes, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. I love that idea of brotherly love. Anybody who's spoken to Anginas for more than 10 minutes will probably have heard her say, you know, we're not just church, we're family. That kind of profound community is what we need to allow us to be effective in mission, to be unified together. John 13, 35 reads, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Unity not only makes us more effective in mission, but suddenly it's another opportunity to reveal the love and will of Jesus through the way that people see we interact with one another. This unity is going to be right at the core of us being effective in mission, regardless of where it is, whether it's here in Dural or whether it's the ends of the earth. Bob Goff, um, who's an American pastor, writes in his book, Everybody Always Becoming Love in a World Full of Setbacks and Difficult People. That's the name of his book. It's a bit of a mouthful, but it's a good title. He writes, Jesus talked to his friends a lot about how we should identify ourselves. He said it wouldn't be by what we said we believed or all the good we hoped to do someday. Nope. He said we would identify ourselves simply by how we loved people. It's tempting to think there's more to it, but there's not. Love isn't something we fall into. Love is something that we become by becoming more like Jesus daily. We can't show Jesus' love to others if, if we can't get this right here. So, restoration, revelation, reconciliation. The last point I want to look at, the last quality of effective mission I want to explore is reiteration. Nick Casser spoke about being disciples who make disciples. In 1 Peter 3.15, he writes, Do as I do. Do as I do. For I am doing as Christ did. You are doing well. You remember everything I told you, and you are doing what I taught you to do. We need to be first, if we're going to be disciples who make disciples, living a life of accountability. I mean, could you say to someone who's a new believer, oh, you want to know what it's like to be a Christian? Just do as I do. I know there probably would be a few moments in the car on Old Windsor Road where I wouldn't be able to be like, ah, oh, <laughs> you want to see Jesus? Just check out how I drive on Old Windsor Road. We need to be accountable. We need to live lives which are accountable so that we can then be disciples who make disciples through example. 
We need to be continually investing in a mentor culture, not only finding people who are going to be our mentors, but also mentoring, mentoring others. From my own personal experience, the, the few experiences I've had of teaching over the years, that's when I learn the most. Not when I'm the student, but when I'm actually, ironically, the teacher. <laughs> I always say that the times that I learn the most is when I have to write a sermon, when I have to teach someone guitar, when I have to do a, a lecture at uni. That's when I learn the most because the amount of study, the amount of self-growth, the amount of development that I have to do so that I can then pass that on to somebody is so much more. <laughs> so I'd really encourage you guys, find a mentor but also mentor somebody. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, building disciples up to a place where they can share the gospel themselves, holding disciples accountable, gently correcting, and training them. And discipleship establishes mission with longevity. Right, Our God is eternal and our outreach needs to be like-minded. It needs to be generational. And we are so blessed to be at a church which is multi-generational. Say that 10 times fast. We are able to be experiencing multi-generational discipleship. Thinking generationally. Just as God blessed the seed of Abraham, we need to not only be planting these seeds, but watering them and fertilizing and pruning When God said he blessed the seed of Abraham, he was talking about Jesus. God was thinking multi-generationally. We need to be thinking multi-generationally in our mission. Because what happens when discipleship is neglected? It's kind of the four walls of our mission are going to fall down. I'll uh, finish with this. Uh, Stephen Neal writes in A History of Christian Missions. He talks about the early Indian missionaries and where they went wrong. He writes, but in the case of the Indian mass movements, there was also the simple external fact that in no case were the forces supplied by the Western churches adequate to secure the necessary continuity in the work and the aftercare that is so urgently needed by simple and illiterate Christians. I'm not talking about simple and illiterate in English, simple and illiterate in the gospel. Experience shows that intensive pastoral care must be supplied during a period of 30 years before a Christian community of this kind can be regarded as stable. In hardly any case was this possible. As a result, far too much came to be taken for granted. It was assumed mistakenly that the sons and the grandsons who had not shared the experiences of the first converts and the persecution that almost invariably followed upon their decision to become Christians would follow loyally in the same steps. In many cases, failure in pastoral care resulted in the existence of masses of baptized heathens. And when once a movement has run down in this way, it is very difficult to get it started again. We need to be reiterating, we need to be creating a culture of discipleship and mentorship. So, four qualities of effective mission. Restoration, share the gospel not only in word, but in deed, in what we do. Revelation, contextualize the gospel to people in their situation, in their world, in their culture. Reconciliation, being effective through our community, through our unity. And reiteration, disciples who make disciples. Let me quickly pray for us. God, I thank you so much that you have called us all to be mission, missional Christians.
who share your gospel. God, I pray that um, as we gather here today, we'd be encouraged, if we're not already, to think about what the end of our world is, to think about what the boundary it is that you have called us to cross in our own life. Lord, if it is your will, I pray that you would bring to our hearts and minds people who you want us to seek out to be mentored by and people that we would seek out to mentor as we continue to build a community of disciples who make disciples. We give it all over to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.